Today we're going to jump back into our, uh, our series in Philippians. And we are officially at our one-month countdown to Easter. And in the spirit of really trying to celebrate Lent together as a body, I thought it fitting that we spend this next month teaching and reflecting on the major role Jesus' cross plays in our lives. This is part and parcel with what I'm saying about the Lent guide. Uh, this is a, a month where I want us to really focus and meditate on who God is and what he has done for us. We don't just want to sing about the cross Sunday. It's my prayer that we'll sing much more loudly from the top of our hearts because we've spent some time really understanding how significant this season is in the life of the Christian. Because it was significant in the lives of those men and women who were following Jesus before us. Think about this. In the Christian calendar, the history of the church, in one month, nobody knows it yet, but in one month, everybody who had spent roughly three years with Jesus, they were going to see him put on a cross. And this was a new thing for them. They'd never seen this before, at least Jesus on the cross. And so for us, depending on where we're at in our faith, it might be the same reality. We might have been Christians for a long time, but maybe we are not engaged with the reality of what the cross does for us in the way that we should be. Or maybe we're newer to the faith or questioning the faith. And this idea of the cross, something that the Christian, as we grow in Christ, becomes so comfortable with, maybe we're not so comfortable with that. The point of this is that we want to spend some time over this next month sort of building an anticipation to the cross. And these past weeks, we've been looking at a series of teachings in Philippians and elsewhere, as you'll see today when we bounce into Ephesians for a few moments, talking about how God brings about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so we have this beautiful opportunity to examine the foundation that that fruit is built on, the cross. Without the cross, there is no fruit of the Spirit. There is no joy in the Christian faith. It is the cross without question. It is the, the cement foundation and the resurrection which follows that allows us to fulfill and to press into all the promises that God says he, he wants us to live in and the things that he wants us to be. So in keeping with our study, we'll look at some ver various teachings that lend a greater clarity to what Paul says very briefly here in Philippians chapter 3. The, the rhythm here, if you're visiting with us today or maybe you're new, uh, is Paul says he's like, I mean, they are pretty profound things. He's got like a, a series of these one-liners in Philippians chapter 3. And then he just moves on. And so in Philippians, we've just read today, he says, listen, I want you to participate in, uh, in the resurrection of Jesus and the sufferings and all that good stuff. We're going to spend some time talking about what that means over the next month, because that's a pretty profound statement that is much more significant than a one-sentence teaching in the book of Philippians. And what we learn here today is that the foundational reason God puts Jesus on the cross for us is so that we could be like God, or I like to say so that we could inherit the DNA of God. And I hope you recognize the amazing nature of what I just said. God says through the cross that he invites us into this relationship where he desires that we become like him. Not be God, but become like God. Pretty different. Pretty different statement. It's a beautiful reality when you think about it. He gives himself up for us so that we can become beloved sons and daughters of, of him. And a passage like this once again shows us, and this is perhaps another beauty of the, the Easter season, is it starts to show what Christianity stands in stark contrast to, even in regard to some of the other major world religions. Christianity, Christianity once again stands apart from other world religions because there is no other God, lowercase g, who offers us the unique and awesome privilege to live as a child of God like this. This truth is a prerequisite for us to deeply experience the Christian life laid out in Philippians. If you want a life of joy in Jesus, you have to understand some of the reality of what it means to participate in the life. Paul says, I want to be like Jesus in his death. And then in Ephesians, he says, I need you to, to be like Jesus in life. Those are the two kind of poles that he's talking about here. Both are prerequisite for us to deeply experience the Christian life laid out in Philippians. 
And in short, a teaching like this shows us that all growth in God is directly connected to how you see your identity in God. How you understand who your Father in Heaven is, what He has done, who He has made you, and what He expects you to do in life. When those four cylinders are out of order, you are likely going to miss the Christian faith. But the beauty of the Christian faith is that when we discipline our lives to focus on God, to study about Him, to grow in community with Him, to pray to Him, God has a unique way of aligning those cylinders so that we actually start becoming like His Son. And in Scripture, there is perhaps no greater identity than to be considered a child of God. That's why I say God wants us to become like Him. The, the, the proclamation of these two teachings is that He gives us His spiritual DNA through Jesus. He puts it in us. A title we'll later see carries with it some profound benefit. There are some immeasurable privileges with, with living in the reality that you are a loved child of the living God. And so today, I want us to ask ourselves a question. When we talk about the, the coming of Easter and the reality of what the cross means to us, the question I ask you today, and we'll try to answer through this talk, is have we truly accepted the invitation to know and be like God in a way that reflects what Paul refers to in Philippians 3.10? Are we pursuing Jesus in the way that he challenges us to in Philippians and commands us to in, in Ephesians? We begin answering that question today by laying a very important theological foundation. And for the next four weeks, every point, every single point of what I'm going to say to you guys is going to begin with, the cross shows us something. And for today, the two points will be, the cross shows us God gave Jesus up for us so we could be like him. This is the first one. Philippians 3.10, we just read. Ephesians 5.1, I will reread to you. Paul tells us in Philippians, be like Jesus in death. He wants to become like him, to participate in his suffering. He calls that a, a form of fellowship. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. And since both of these passages that we've read today teach us we can become like God, we really need to define what that means. Because if we, if we skew that statement, and I'll just reiterate what I said a minute ago, it's one thing to become like God, it's another thing to think you are God. Those are two different statements. Paul in both places tells us we can become like God in, in a way. Because of the significance of that statement, we really need to define what that means. You might ask why. Well, this command, let's be frank, is a bit on the audacious side of things when you really think about it. You know, we can say, hey, be nice, be kind. We could talk about things to be. But in these passages, Paul is telling us to be like God. And if you have a proper understanding of who God is, there is an audacity in that. It, it seems like an unrealistic ideal, frankly. In both places, Paul is essentially saying, think about your father in heaven. Think about God in heaven. He is perfect, he is just, he is holy, he is righteous, he is all-loving, he is merciful. Now, take that short list of his attributes and a ton that I haven't even mentioned, and he says, I want you to literally become that. Become like that in your death. Become like that as you imitate God in your life. I want you to be all of that. Because how you understand who you are before God and how you live your life for God is a big part of what it means to be a child of God. Now, to be clear, when Paul says imitate God, or, or become like God, I want to make sure we understand a very important distinction here. He's not saying to do this in the mechanical sense, meaning like, you know, uh, mimicking in a very rote or, or plastic type of way. Because that leads us to what we talked about last week. The driving impetus of what we learned last week is that it's very possible for people to have the right actions in their life with the wrong heart motive. Right? We talked about the problem of sin, how it, it can distort both the good and the bad. And we read that passage from Matthew, where you literally had uh, the Pharisees who were doing all the right things, 
But the right things became the wrong things because the motive of their heart was, was completely not right before God. And so he's not saying just do this to do this. There is a, a, a vital substance, if you will, a heart-deep recognition of the why we're doing this in our lives. When we become like God, there should be something very vibrant and, and authentic in that. Otherwise, we'll come into that problem we talked about last week, which we want to avoid. What he's telling us here is in light of God's promise fulfilled on the cross... The one we're talking about now is that God says, I would like you to be like me. I want you to follow me and grow into my image. We can do that because God tells us he intends to make us into a new people like him. So this is pressing into the reality of a promise God has already made us, that the cross shows us. We can become like God because he died for us to be able to do so. And so we kind of wrap this around and we end up where we began. Is this an audacious statement? Absolutely. Undeniable. I'm not even going to dispute that. But as audacious as this command is, it is not a new one, and it is not an unattainable one. It's not certainly one we're going to accomplish with pure perfection, but Paul would not be telling us these things if they were not possible for us. And what you'll find is that throughout the whole Bible, this idea of becoming like God, reflecting his image, lots of vernacular we use, but the root of it all says the same thing. When we truly become God's redeemed people, when we become children of God, sons and daughters of God, you and I are supposed to derive a new nature that is supposed to come from God. In other words, when you ask God to be your heavenly father, you should start wanting to be like your heavenly father. That's the nature of this. There's no ideal in that. There's no hard-edged, you know, uh, kind of proclamation in that. I'm not trying to set a bar that's unattainable. I'm just saying one of our new goals because of the cross should be, since God made a way for us to be like him, we should desire to be like him. Let me give you a good example of this. Uh, One of the things I love about One of the descriptions, anyways, of God in the scripture, and perhaps one of the primary ones, is the idea that God is referred to as our Father. And that gives every single person in this room a tangible touch point, okay? Meaning, some of us are fathers. Every one of us has has or had a father. Some of us will be fathers. And in the mix of all that identity are all of these narratives, both healthy and unhealthy. Some of us likely have healthy understandings of fatherhood and great dynamics there. Some of us did not. Some of us might not have ever known our father. Some of us might be struggling to be a father. Who knows where that arrow points? But the bottom line is these these earthly relationships are often used to describe how God wants to interact with us. You have to remember when we speak about fatherhood, we have to make sure that we're looking true north here. We don't want to take examples of earthly fatherhood the good ones even, because even the good ones are not as great as who God is, right? And the, and the bad ones are certainly not at all who God is. We want to make sure that the rudder is coming from heaven, that the drive for fatherhood is always being defined by who God is and not necessarily our experience. And so, for example, I'll give you one of the, at least what I think are one of the positive sides of this. You could be the, you know, the jury here in a moment. As an earthly father, I have three kids. Most of you that know me know that. And they wear me out regularly. And uh, I got a haircut this week, and I noticed all the gray coming off the side. It's happening. It's like the beginning of the end for me. So I'm an earthly father. I got three kids. My, my son's going to be 11 tomorrow. And I've noticed this type of behavior, this kind of rubbing off behavior, this imitation behavior, it starts to develop in your kids as they get older. When they begin to develop their own identities, what you see is that uh, in many ways they are developing an individual identity. But in a lot of ways, they're beginning to identify with some of your identity as a parent. And that makes sense because you're making this constant deposit into them. And so I first noticed this with my son when he was seven. That's four years ago. And I'm starting to see it now with my girls who are about at the same age. Uh, and this has been very clear to me in, in a, very, a very common way uh, in the way that we kind of have humor in our home. 
Uh, it's no secret. I, I love humor. I try to be funny whenever I can, when it's applicable. Uh, humor in general is just something I've always valued. I was raised with it in my home, kind of satire. And all of that is sort of something that unintentionally I just valued it because people who matter to me valued it. And what I've noticed is that over the years, in this and in other areas, this trait has rubbed off on my children, especially my son, because he's like a, you know, he's like an older boy now. In many ways, he's become in this area a little reflection of me. And my wife says on a regular basis that we have a very similar sense of satirical humor. And that comes through at times because sometimes we can like fi finish each other's jokes. And I think it's awesome when that happens. I'm looking at him and seeing him and me and whether he knows it yet or not, he's looking at me and some of who I am is some of who he is becoming. There are times in our house where, where uh, deep down inside I see this and, and I love this about him and my girls. Much younger but starting to exhibit a similar trait. This is sort of an earthly reality. Put this in your own world. Think about a, a parent or even somebody whom you are very close to relationally who has rubbed off on you. Think about somebody in your life who you have rubbed off on. These are earthly relational examples of what the Bible is talking about here in a, very, in a heavenly way, you might say. That whether we are aware of it or not, everyone in this life from the moment of our birth is becoming some, like something. And for good reason. It is universally accepted. When it comes to rearing children, and we'll run with that metaphor today because of the fatherly analogy we're looking at, universally accepted that for children to develop properly, it helps to have good influences in their life, good rubs, if you will. While it's not an absolute guarantee that you know, a positive influence creates a positive, a positive person in the world or a person who's a healthy contributing member of, the, of society, the reality is, is it, it greatly increases the chances that if you pattern good things before children, they will in large part pattern much of that after you. No guarantee, but you certainly are upping the chances. So I want to talk about becoming for a few moments. Because sometimes these becoming decisions, uh, they are conscious. Like you choose a person you want to be like in life. In my own narrative, what I just said a minute ago, I actually didn't choose satire, if you will. It just was kind of put into me. I, I was raised in a home where it was accepted and expected. But I noticed with my kids, humor became something that I wanted to keep in the, in the family. And so sometimes it's like that. Sometimes we'll say, you know what? I, I want to be something in life. We have role models. We have people we look up to. I've shared multiple times. Winston Churchill is an incredible influence in my life. We just named our dog after him. I shared with you a month ago. We got a dog out of nowhere in our neighborhood. We walk in and there was a stray dog. And now we have a dog. And we named him Winston Churchill because Winston is one of my life heroes, right? Sometimes you look at that and you say, I want to be like that guy. And when I find a stray dog, I'm going to name him after that guy, right? It's such shape in everything you do. I didn't wake up one day saying that. I just saw this guy and admired much about him. You know, there's character traits we like about folks. This guy has the ability to uh, endure during extreme adversity. Or maybe you are really bent towards compassion, right? And you see somebody like a Mother Teresa, and you're like, it is amazing how I didn't know a human could live that selflessly for other people. We look at that, and we desire to be like that. Other times, it's entirely passive. And I'm sure you can all identify with this. You probably have people in your life you have looked up to or are looking up to. But you might also have times in your life where... You just sort of absorb, it's like an osmosis, if you will, the DNA of people in your life. Because they're the only pattern you have to imitate. Like maybe, you know, you never woke up one day saying, I want to be generous and caring. But you had a lot of people in your life who were like that and it just developed in you. Or you, maybe you were around uh, a culture and environment where responsibility was really, really rooted into who you were. And, you know, that wasn't necessarily on your life goal list, but you, you turned out being that. That became a value to you. Or on the negative side... 
Think about this. Anxiety and fear. A lot of these are learned behaviors. If we grow up in environments where where fear of, of the unknown and tension and anxiety and stress is the norm, what happens is we start to see the world that way. And when left unchecked, we can actually see the world in ways that are not healthy. Like, for example, I won't give you a, you know, a psychological lesson on anxiety, but anxiety is often an unfounded anxiousness. There, there's stuff going on in your life where our response to it is not proportionate. Sometimes that's learned and nobody, at least that I know, wakes up and say, I want to be the most anxious person in the world. That's not your Tuesday morning like bucket list goal. But you might have this rubbed off on you enough to where it actually becomes some of who you are. Now, we could go on like this all morning, but I simply want to use this earthly reality to point out a cross truth. Because the cross says, no matter who we are, God ultimately wants us to become like him. And so what this means is in the areas we're becoming something good, there's affirmation for God, from God. In the places where we might have drifted into areas that are not good, there is love and grace and correction and guidance from God. This is the truth of the cross. Paul is trying to show us something here. Whether we know it or not, everyone is becoming like something in our lives. And the job for those of us who are in Jesus is to make sure that it is like Jesus. In two places, I want to become like him in death. I want, to, I want to be able to see things like suffering as like fellowshipping with Jesus. Think about that statement. He's saying, when my life is hard because I'm honoring God, I recognize that that is a blessing because Jesus' life was hard at times because he was honoring God. He says, I want to be a part of that. You don't get to that place unless you truly understand your identity in God. Or what he says in Philippians, imitate God, excuse me, Ephesians, imitate God. Right? Become like him in the ways that matter most. All of these are earthly examples of what the Bible is talking about here in a heavenly way. Whether you are aware of it or not, from birth, you're becoming like something. I'm becoming like something. And there is a foundational reason for this. We are in God. We have been created by God. For those of us in God, we have been hardwired, you might say, uh, but, but activated. That hardwiring has been activated to become like God. The rest of the world, whether they are aware of it or not, has been created to be like God. And a great many people don't actually press into that. The reason we're like this is because the Bible teaches us all people have been created to deeply know and become like God. We're made to be his, his mirror. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A reflection of his goodness and grace. And in our lives, we have a choice. Become like Jesus or let something else rub off on us. Now, you know God's desire for your life is to let God rub off on you. His desire is that you become like him. That we embrace the fruit of the Spirit we talked about a month ago. That is what God wants for us. That's what he wants for all people. But as you well know, this is not what all people always want for themselves. And this is true even for us in Jesus. There are times when our lives are out of order when it comes to who God wants us to be. We're reflecting something improperly or maybe something that's not even accurate at all. And I'm, I want to share with you, uh, my, this is my favorite example of this. I shared it with you three years ago in a talk I did on image. But my favorite example of this reflection Reality, And I'm talking about reflection outside of the Christian world. This goes to show you that this is a pretty prevalent idea. They might, might not, people might not be able to articulate it like this, but the fact that everybody's trying to be like somebody or something is a common reality in the world because we've been made to be like God. My, my kind of uh, aha moment with this truth was when I was checking out at a convenience store here in Port Orange. It's not even open anymore. It's shut down. But a few years ago, I had bought some stuff and was checking out at a, at a cashier's counter, and I noticed the clerk was actually not paying attention to me. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I put my stuff on the counter, and the person was right in front of me, but they were looking like 10 feet over me. 
behind me. And I realized that they were doing that because they were watching a cable TV show that was behind me, like one of those courtesy uh, televisions that were provided for the shoppers. And while the TV was a nice addition to the store, um, what they were watching wasn't. I turned around to see what the what the person was looking at. And it was one of those, you know, this will probably date me a little bit, but it was one of those like Jerry Springer type shows where they're talk shows steeped in controversy. And at the end of the day, everybody's fighting and throwing chairs at each other. It's one of those shows. And uh, what this person was watching was literally a show about it, it was entitled something like people becoming somebody else. And it was an odd but really intriguing subject. Because what they were doing was interviewing a panel of people who were like they were born like a person with a name and a family. And they decided to literally become somebody else in life to mimic another person, almost always a celebrity type person. And in this this uh, person who was being talked to, they decided to mimic somebody known for their deep intellectual contributions to the world. Someone we would all agree is a role model for our kids. And this will probably date me a little bit, too, here. But uh, his name is a guy called uh, Little Wayne. I don't know if you remember this dude. Um, some of you know him as Wheezy. But Wheezy was this, like, really, like, dynamite rapper in the 90s. And still today, he's around making music. But the, one of the problems with this was... Um, he was always in trouble. I mean, like he'd put a good record out and then all of a sudden he'd be in jail. And so this is a person sort of known for always being into something that is not that is not good. Most of the time, anyways, you know, this is where my sense of satire is going to come in. And I need my son to corroborate where I'm about to go with this. Right. I'm watching this show where uh, he is. He is. I cannot explain if you've ever seen a picture of this guy. He is a spinning image of this guy. And I was shocked. He the the dress. Uh, the hair, matching facial tattoos. It was a carbon copy replica, physical, and even the way he was carrying himself to this rapper. I mean, he was even dancing like him. And the clerk, you know, I was like shocked. I kind of like forgot that I had stuff on the counter. I was watching this. And the clerk apparently had, had, a, had a, a, an alert or an alarm with it too because she just started talking to me about the TV show right on the spot. I mean, like we went way back. Like we used to share a dorm room together or something back in the 90s. She was talking to me like we were best friends. And she had some quasi-religious past I could hear from what she was saying that was shaping her opinion of this, this guy's decision to reflect this image of little, uh, Lil Wayne. But she got to this place where she said, that guy doesn't realize, that boy doesn't know that there are better people to grow up and be like. She recognized this is not a good role model. And she said, you know, I, I, I can't imagine somebody wanting to make this them, themselves. And she went on to say, this was the thing that caught my attention. She said, somebody needs to tell that kid that he was created in God's image and he should be proud of that because of that. And then she went on. I mean, she was just like barreling through this whole thing. And she closed her speech by saying to me that that boy wasn't fooling anyone. I, and I really laughed when she said that. She said, because when he dies, she said, they're going to write his name on the grave and it ain't going to say Lil Wayne. <laughs> That's what she said to me. And she saw the, the futility in that. He was becoming something that he could, in this case, he could never be because that person already exists, right? Now, I was taken back by the passion and I was uh, truthfully uh, encouraged by it too, because it showed me that there was a common point and we really agreed on something. And I did tell her eventually, like, I really appreciate the talk, but I need to check out and go home. We've been here like 20 minutes. I got to get out of here. And I checked out and then I left. But her, her rightful concern creates an interesting question for us when we talk about this idea of becoming like somebody. And it kind of goes back to exactly what Paul has already said. He, in the affirmative, tells us to be like Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves is whose image or what image are you consciously or unconsciously reflecting in your life? That's what this comes down to, because the scripture teaches every one of us. Every single person is reflecting an image of something in their life. And it is important that we become self-aware in God's grace of what that is. We should never want our lives to unravel. 
and unravel meaning like it's just rolling out. The carpet of life is rolling out. But we don't have any thought or forethought into who we're trying to be or become. We have to ask that question regularly. Who are we becoming like? And then we have to honestly ask if it does line up with Jesus on the cross. Because remember, the cross says God wants you to be like him. So becoming like God requires the, the regular asking of this question. And having people in our lives who can ask it to us. And people in our lives whom we can ask it of. It requires that you have the guts to identify what you have been allowing to shape your image. And you have to be confident in the fact that if you stumble across something that isn't God, if you're imitating something that isn't Christ, then you have to turn from that. That's why we talked about sin last week. You have to realize where we're out of sorts with God and then, and then get back into sorts with God. This is an important question to ask on a regular basis because we're built to reflect something. And I promise... Here's the hard reality of this. I promise if we're reflecting something, especially those of us in Jesus, if we're reflecting something that is not Jesus, we are selling our life reflection short. That's just the bottom line. In the mirror is a much smaller image of what we have meant, what God desires us to be, who he has designed us to be. When we miss that, we miss the cross. We miss what the cross teaches us. We miss the reality of what it means to be a true child of God. And we miss the the relational benefits associated with this heart-deep knowledge, and they are profound. That's where we're going to go here in a moment. God just doesn't say, be like me. He does say that, but he says, be like me, grow into me, be a child of mine for very explicit reasons. Because he wants to be your father. He wants to love you and care for you and be there for you. He wants to be a part of the process of you becoming like him. That's why I say this is profound. And it leads me to the second thing that I want to share with you this morning. We've identified that the cross says, hey, we have the opportunity to become like God. The cross also shows us uh, we don't just get to be like God. We get to be children of God. We get to be dearly loved children of God. It's not even just that he calls you a child. It's this idea of like you being his beloved child. This is the language Paul uses in Ephesians 5.1 and elsewhere. You know, you have Jesus on the cross who refers to one of his disciples as a beloved What these examples show us, and they explain why we have a talk on the cross in a month, a sermon on the cross, is because Jesus loves us. He deeply cares for us. And we learn here that if you're not truly, you're not truly living the Christian life, unless you're living it as a beloved child of God. That's the idea behind this. You're you're not truly living the Christian life unless you desire to become like God in your life and in your death. And so this is a a beautiful truth enabled by the cross. We're not able to do any of this unless there is a cross. The cross says that the the Christian was built to live in meaningful relationship. And we often talk about this relationship, this meaningful relationship, from the angle of ecclesiology. Uh, The doctrine of the church that says all Christians, past, present, and future, are one eternal family that God has organized into local church communities like this one right here. We become a family meant to deeply experience God through each other. And there's a whole talk I did on this three weeks ago. We're not revisiting that side of the fence. We're going to look at the other side of the fence this morning. This is one of the greatest blessings God provides us in the church. To become like Jesus means means we have to be in relationship with other people trying to become like Jesus. We have a very high view of the church, of the family of God. One of the great blessings of the church. But it does us well to know that that was not something that sprouted out of the ground. It does us well to know that that love and support we experience on earth with each other in this place, it finds its original root in God's love in heaven. In other words, it's something that he is that he provides for us. It isn't something we invented on our own. 
And Paul regularly illustrates this kingdom truth in, in a number of ways, but the most significant uh, truths that he gives us, these metaphors, if you will, that he gives us to illustrate these truths, always have to do with super meaningful relationship. Uh, we talk about husband and wife, we talk about many members in one body, we, we talk about, uh, in this moment here, we're going to talk about this, this idea of adoption. These are always what we call high-end or really, really substantial relationships. The most valuable ones on earth. Here Paul is using, uh, or in other places, he uses this idea of, of childhood or, or being adopted, which is a very big theme in our church. If you've been here with us for a while, you know that physical adoption uh, is a high priority for us here. Because physical adoption is a, uh, it's a physical representation of what God does for us on the cross. He adopts us out of spiritual orphanage, you might say, into, into loving fatherhood. And so on the cross, we see uh, we are made children of God. And in Paul's world, this idea of a child, of an adopted child, is something worth looking at for a few moments. Because I have an adopted child. And I can tell you that modern adoption looks very different than what Roman adoption looked like. Uh, when you think of adoption today, okay, in the modern world, almost entirely, it, 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 what's, the, what's the peer of that? It's uh, the picture of that. It's a grown person adopting a, a child. Okay. That's usually what adoption is here. But this is very contrary to what it was like in the Roman world. Because unlike today, adoption in Rome, and think about this, when Paul speaks about childhood, all this is in his backdrop. Adoption in Rome typically talked about adult adoption. Now you might think that's like just straight up weird. Like if I adopted like a 30-year-old person, that would be weird because that person should be able to take care of themselves, right? I'm not going to adopt that dude to live in my basement and play video games. You wouldn't do that. It's, it's weird. But the point of adoption, at least in many places in the Roman world, was not the way we saw it. Let me explain. It usually took place when a man got up in life and realized that there was no, no, no heir in his world to leave his life to. The property or the fortune, whatever it was. So in that case, this person would go find a younger person whom they loved and they would adopt them with the purpose of leaving them the riches of the inheritance. That's the beauty of adoption. And Paul's day to be adopted, man, you were brought into the family to keep the family going. And you were granted the full family status and inheritance of your father. You got the money, you got the land, and you got the incredibly important family name. Just like today, uh, this is a place where there is a strong commonality. The law declared that person a fully-fledged son or daughter of the adopter. There, if you look at the law, I have an Asian daughter who we love just like a biological daughter. And that might look different from the outside, but as far as our love for her, it's no different on the inside. And the law, like the law, does not make a distinguishing, uh, there's no distinguishing mark there anymore. The law sees her no different than, they, than it sees my, my biological children. This is how the law saw this person. They were completely vested into the familial privileges of the adopter. And Paul uses this childhood analogy, this idea of adoption regularly to describe our understanding of who we are before Jesus, before God. Why is that? Why is adoption such a motivation for him, to, for us to parallel this into our own lives? Well, it's really a very simple answer, one that we'll unpack in the close here. If you want to fully experience the blessings of the cross, which is what we're going to try to emphasize here over the next month, you must first embrace your identity as a beloved child of God. That's why I said at the outset of this sermon, you have to understand who you are in God. If you want to understand what the cross does for you, those two things are interchangeable. The cross says, you are now this in me. You are my child. And as a child, you are supposed to begin living a certain way. 
And we'll close this morning by briefly pointing out three absolutely amazing fatherly privileges God wants to bestow upon you through the cross. In other words, when you see the cross, you should definitely see Jesus on it dying for your sins. But you should also see through the cross and beyond the cross of what it means now for the rest of your life. The cross should create uh, more images, if you will, in your head. Not just that singular image. Jesus' death with us is profound. Or for us is profound. But his death also signifies a way of living. It empowers us to live a certain way. How we understand these privileges are the raw evidence of his indwelling presence in your heart that become the raw power for living the Christian life. So the first fatherly privilege, I'll be very brief here, I promise. But the first fatherly privilege the cross gives you is knowing you are unconditionally loved. God accepts you as you are. Now, I've, I've thematically talked about love throughout this whole talk today. Because in modern Christianity, this statement here, th- this statement here is just straight up in the scripture. It's undeniable. But in modern Christianity, I think perhaps more than any other verse, the verses in the Bible that talk about God's like unfailing, unwavering love for us. These statements sometimes are thrown around in such a flippant way that we have truly lost the, the feel for how magnificent this sentence is and how it separates God from, from every other lowercase g God in the universe. And when this is deeply believed that God looks at you and says, I love you, period. It has the power to do pretty amazing things in our lives. It can free us to live while creating an unrivaled stability in our lives. So think about this. Let's go back to fatherhood or parenthood in general here. One of the unique aspects of a parent's love is that you can often love your child when nobody else can. You can, you can see hope and optimism in them when other people cannot because of the level of the relationship you have. This is one of the unique things about child rearing. You also know if you have kids, and I'll kind of colloquially say this, that when we speak about these analogies, it, it will be harder for you to fully understand truths like this if you don't have your own children. But it is not impossible for you to understand what we're talking about now. So don't dial yourself out right now and say, I don't have kids, so this doesn't really make sense to me. You have to understand that you are God's beloved child. And so there's just a different way you're going to learn this. So press into the fact that you are a child and think about the way that the Lord treats you. There are times when in our children that we will look at what they're doing and we will absolutely not approve of what they're doing. There are times when I have to tell my kids in the same way my parents had to tell me, you can't do this, this is wrong, you have to stop this. You, know, you, you have an attitude or you're going to get hurt if you do this. I can tell you as a parent, and this has really given me a much greater appreciation for my parents. This is all the stuff you're told when you're 20, but you never believe until you're like 40. Uh, you, look at, you look at your kids and you say, I completely dis- dis- I'm displeased with this, with what you're doing. But I still love you. And healthy parenting says, like, I don't stop loving you because of this. I, there is a, an ability to have this dichotomy where you can be incredibly displeased with what your kid is doing without losing the love and affection you have for them. When it is flipped, that table, it can actually be a very unhealthy understanding of parenting. If your children are raised to know that you, they just, you, you love them for what they do, it's sort of not loving them. It's loving them for something they can become or something they're doing, but you're missing the root of what the love is built on. And what we find with gospel counseling, with good Christian counseling, with good Jesus living, is that when we understand God loves us for who we are, it often shapes in very positive ways what we begin to do. When you know that your love from your Father in heaven is, it, it is not, it's not compromised. He loves you, period. That becomes a healthy motivation 
it can become a healthy motivation anyways, for you to actually start living in the ways that start to please your Father in Heaven. It likely creates a desire in the child to do better. And the point I'm making here is that this is how God loves us. And it is a truth that we have to wrap our hearts around no matter where we are in life. We have to try whether we have kids or don't have kids because it determines whether or not you're living the way God has designed you to live. And I'll say this. Here's a way you can figure out whether or not you, you see yourself as a loved child of God, like Paul says in, in Ephesians. And when you think of your life, if it's sort of like a roller coaster, like an emotional and spiritual roller coaster, uh, life is always unstable or hectic or crazy. Um, if you think maybe that, you know, when you think of God, your father in heaven, you think that he looks at you and your life is sort of like a great reality TV show. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's awesome. You just wrecked your car and life's getting terrible. Tune in, boys. We're going to watch life go south. If you think God is up there like happy when you're displeasing him and failing him, uh, that's a problem, right? If you think that he's just like cheering and waiting for you to fail him, uh, that's a problem. And then when you think that he he shuns you because of that failure, that's a problem. Now, granted, a proper recognition of sin and repentance is a part of this equation. We talked about this last week. But your God is for you because he loves you like his own child. And so what I'm saying here is if you are defined by instability in your relationship with God, always wondering whether or not he is there for you or for you, then what it says is you don't understand the cross because the cross says God is here for you and wants you to become like him. Even when you are doing things that displease God, which we would never encourage, this is not a license to do this. I'm just saying when you displease God, and we all displease God because we sin at times, he will never stop loving you. He cannot stop loving you. Because he is love. So if this is you, then you have to stop thinking like that. And you have to start looking to the cross and experiencing the stability of what it means to be a child of God. That truth will very likely change every outward behavior you have. Watch what God does on the outside when you truly embrace who he wants you to be on the inside. Don't separate those two things. Your Father in heaven loves you. That's what the cross teaches us. Secondly, second fatherly privilege... The cross gives you is knowing you have this amazing access to God or unbridled, I like to use. So uh, another, another reality of good parenting, uh, parental hope, you might say, is that our children know that we're available to them. We want our kids to be comfortable in coming to us no matter what, we're, what they're dealing with. When we are parenting them, we want them to know that they have a, a granted. And in this case, the, the, the nature of the relationship, right? Father to son, son to father, father to daughter, daughter to father, whatever it is, mom to children, children to mom, that relationship provides a unique set of privileges. And one of the big ones that is, it's healthy for us to know is that we have parents that love us and care for us and we can go to them when we need them. That's a good thing. And that evolves and changes as our children get older. But the hope is that when your kids are 30 or 40, they're still talking to you and they want to be engaged with you and they want to understand. They, they value where you've been in life and they want to learn from that as well as you learning from where they are at in life, right? This type of access, this, this safe space, you might say, of being able to go to your father and have him, of a parent being able to go to you, encourages and builds trust over the years. And that trust likely builds a meaningful relationship. And this type of access is exactly what God promises us as his children. It's an absolute mind-blower to me. You know, I've joked before about hold times when we speak to God. I mean, think about this. If you, if you just called Walmart right now, I guarantee you, we would baptize your children Easter Sunday before you get somebody to pick that phone up. That's what would happen. You'll be on hold for four weeks, right? Every time I call woman, I'm just on a perpetual hold loop. Yet your father in heaven, who's dealing with like roughly 9 billion people in the world right now, available to you immediately. No hold. He's not like, oh, sporting goods. Let me try that again. That doesn't happen with him, right? Your God is available to you. 
that's pretty profound. He's available to you when you're not even available to him. And I think that's something to know. It's something that will encourage you. It's something that helps you to understand your identity and who God is. And you know, I'll just be brief here, but you can see your father in heaven by going to him through the word. You can see your father in heaven by praying to him. You can see your father in heaven by going to other people who love Jesus, by pressing into the rhythms of what it means to follow God. So you have to know when we speak of God being there for you, your God is always available to you. In fact, he's available to us in spaces and places in life when we're not. He redeems the world of sin when we don't even understand what that fully means. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you accessible to him, right? It, when, when, when he wants to be engaged in your life, do you provide a reciprocal availability? Are you open? Are you willing? Are you following? Are you listening? Or is it a closed relationship? That's a two-way street, available to you. So be available to him. Lastly, I'll say here, the, the third fatherly privilege in, that the cross provides you is knowing that you are really protected by God. And I'll be very brief here. Um, just like accessibility, uh, any parent worth their salt will tell you that one of our main responsibilities is to protect your children, no matter how old they get. Uh, I can tell you, and I have said this before, uh, there have been few greater pains in my life than seeing cho- my children suffer. Uh, you, it, like, it just hurts you in the bone marrow. I don't even know how that happens. It just, it just does. So good parenting says when, when your children are oftentimes suffering or not happy or they're in hard spots in life, you, you start to have empathy for the pain. You want to be there for them. You want to support them through that. Sometimes they will receive that. Sometimes they will not. The same parallel is true with us. There are times when God, God is available to us and we don't want to hear it. There are times when our brothers and sisters in Jesus are available to us. And we don't want to hear it. And then there are times when we're functioning within our sane spiritual mind and we recognize the amazing amount of support that comes through those, those two relationships, our Father in Heaven and those He's put in our lives. As parents, we're always walking in our children's shoes because we love them and we feel for them. And it's, the funny thing about parenting is that even when they can't see that or understand that or feel that from us, the truth is that you're always there. You're always sort of like just one step away. You're, you're anxious for the day that they, they get it and invite you back into their lives. And this is exactly how God is for, with us. Think about us. We are his children. And at times he is, he is constantly working in our lives in ways that we don't get or understand or disapprove of. And he's always wor- working because he is a good parent. He's a good father. He's always working in a way that brings him out around the maximum amount of good in our lives. That word good is a sermon for another day because sometimes his good doesn't agree with what we think our good is. But the bottom line is no matter where we're at in life, even through the worst trials, he, he is making good in his promise, the promise of the cross, to never leave or forsake us. He is always empathizing with us on a physical, spiritual, and emotional level. And even when it feels like he's not around or not with us, God is around and with us. He is constantly and always available to us, present in our lives and working. That is not something that's disputable. I will say it is at times something we have to rebelieve. And so each one of these privileges are great promises the Christian cross makes us. Today, we focus very deeply on the relational promises of the cross. They're a reminder that God has made a way for us to know him and to become like him in very meaningful ways. And so this Lent, think about this. The greatest inheritance you can receive in life, according to what we read today, is the presence of God. There is no greater gift. It's him. And that's what the cross is meant to show us. God gives you himself in Jesus. And just like a child learns to be more like their earthly parent, as they dwell in the, pre- the presence of their Father, we too become like our Heavenly Father when we desire to imitate Him as dearly loved children. And that's really how I want to end today. 
by reminding us to take advantage of this great privilege we've been afforded to live as children of God through the cross. By calling all of you who have yet to be a child of God to think about whether or not it's time to start the paperwork. Maybe you have to ask a question this morning like, what's keeping me from believing in Jesus today? And if something is keeping you, let us know in those connection cards. We'll help you figure that out. Or we'll do our best to anyways. If you're in Jesus and maybe you're saying like, I just feel like an orphan. Like I, I trusted him 20 years ago and I, the life in me is gone. That is something worth praying about and working through. Let us help you there. In light of all the relational places we can be, today look to the cross and give your heart to Jesus or re-give your heart to him. You know, recommit your heart to him. Let him speak to you in ways that, that really reflect the majesty and the authority of the cross. The cross says, be like God. Do not settle for a, a mirror image in your life less than that. When it comes to Jesus' cross in your life, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you and what will you do about it? Pray with me.